0: Exodus chapter 33 this morning, Psalm 119 verses 135 and 136 say this, make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Our Father, we need now for you to open your word to our hearts. We've sung, we've prayed, we've read your word, we've given our tithes and offerings. Now prepare us to receive from your holy book the truth that we need to change us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Last week, I told you we took a, we're taking a little break from Luke to study this theme of revitalizing or reviving the church. And I mentioned last week that it's, it's, I have such an overwhelming desire to spend my life serving Christ and to see His kingdom advance, to see families saved and discipled. And for this church to grow, I, I mentioned the despair I have at potentially getting to the end of life and missing out on seeing God do something great. And so I want to use this series of messages taken from different parts of the scripture to really encourage all of us because because one person cannot make this type of difference for god's church to succeed in his kingdom and advance we need a a group of people that want that same thing i want this church to be, to grow to be balanced and biblical now let's talk about those two words real quickly Biblical in the sense that we fulfill all of the roles that God expresses in His Word that a church should be doing, should be worshiping, should be instructive, should be fellowshipping, should be discipling, should be evangelizing, should be carrying out all those roles biblically a church should be, but to do it in balance. In other words, not to be skewed as a church to one of these over the other. To have all kinds of Bible studies, a lot of instructions, but no deep relationships of any kind. I heard a really interesting quote this week, and I want to, when we come back together on Sunday nights in mid-July, to talk to you about this, because I think this is an area in our church where we can strengthen this, in the area of relationships. And, and someone mentioned, if your church has a lot of activities where people are seated in rows and not in circles. You you may be skewed one to the other, and and that may be true of us. We have a lot of instruction, a lot of, and that's great, we want that, but we need to develop relationships. Or perhaps we have an overemphasis on worship to the exclusion of evangelism. So I want our church to be biblical, no question, but to be balanced in carrying out the roles that God has called us as a church to do. And I want us to I want us to grow. I want to see people saved. I don't want to spin my wheels like a hamster in a a cage doing the same things and seeing no fruit. And so I want to see what God says about it in His Word. We're we're examining together some key phrases and concepts that I want to give uh, to revitalize our church, setting it on the path of health. Last week, we talked about that phrase, making or or God shining his face on us we began looking at the oft-repeated prayers in scripture where people are asking God to shine his face on them saying that this is the favor that God grants to his people and then this favor is what brings the nations to praise Christ psalm chapter 67 and I want to make clear again what I made clear last time is that the saving favor of God, the saving grace of God, is granted to everyone who exercises faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16 tells us that no one is justified. No one is declared right by God through works of the law. They are declared righteous by faith. If you have not trusted Jesus Christ alone apart from works and apart from baptism and apart from some sort of church ceremony or heritage then you must today receive by faith jesus christ as your savior and he he declares in his word that he will grant you saving favor we use the word grace but it's really the same thing but we noted last time that we are also invited to seek god's favor and pray for god's favor and that he grants this favor to people who humbly walk with him in righteousness. There seems to be, and I don't know if these are necessary, necessarily biblical terms, but I think it's biblical teaching, that there is a saving favor. And that there also is a special favor. A special favor that God gives to those who walk in righteousness. And this favor does not imply absence of any sort of difficulties. It's not the favor that the prosperity gospel teaches. It doesn't mean there will not be any dark valleys for us, but it means that God grants His favor to those who seek it and to those who walk righteously. I'm not going to repeat all that I said last week, but if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to the message, which is online. So I encouraged us as individuals and as a ministry to seek the favor of God and to desire the manifestation of His glory and presence so we might see his kingdom advance in this community. And if I'm the only one that has the desire for that, and I'm not saying I am, but if that's the case, if a pastor or the leadership are the only ones who desire that, then we may as well fold this up and lock, because we need everybody to come together. And that's what I want this series to do, to get us all, I said it a couple times last week, to stack hands on this and say, yes, we all agree, and we don't want to just be us four and no more. Or we, don't want to, we want to be biblical and we want to be balanced and say, Andy, I'm with you. And that would be great. Today I want to look at another phrase, show me your glory. But to do that, we have to kind of walk into the context of Exodus 33 and 34. And it's so, it's so beautiful, this teaching, and I hope we have time to get through it all today. I asked you to turn to Exodus 33. The context of this, and, and I'll get to why I had Dave read that lengthy section in Acts in a minute. But in Exodus 33, God has led his people out of the slavery in Egypt, and he has brought them across the Red Sea, gloriously so. And all of Pharaoh's and his armies were drowned as the sea collapsed back in on them. The Israelites, the million or so of them, walking through with the water on both sides, walking through on dry ground. They were let out into the wilderness. If you want to hear some of those stories, we'll be talking about those in Bible school tonight. It's kind of interesting how both messages are coming together for me in my study for Bible school as well. But Moses was called to Mount Sinai where he would receive the Ten Commandments. We brought them in here for you today. Just to, These aren't the actual ones, but this is a visual for tonight. Okay, So he gets the Ten Commandments. While he's up on the mountain, he's remaining there for a long time, and the people start freaking out. We read, Dave read it today. They said, we don't. as for this Moses, remember that part where he read, as for this Moses, we do not, we do not know what has become of him. So they build for themselves, uh, well, I, have the, I have the object back there, but I won't get it out right now, the golden calf. And they say, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And they worship that. And Moses and Joshua, who are up on the mountain together, Moses starts coming down and Joshua says, I hear the sound of war in the camp. I mean, the people are... The term in the Bible is a term for sexual immorality. They are going nuts with their worship onto this false God. And this is mere months after God has brought them out of this uh, uh, slavery in Egypt. So at the end of Exodus 32, that golden calf incident, God sends a plague on the people because of their great sin. Verse 30 says, they sinned a great sin. And in verse 30. Sorry, the numbers are small. 35, last verse of the passage, 32-35, God sends a plague on these people and they they are punished for the golden calf incident. Then in chapter 33, God gives them some instructions and here's where we pick up our story today. Look at Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To you and your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each one would stand at his door And watch Moses until he had gone to the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, this is fascinating, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent." Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Therefore, if I have found favor in in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you, have not, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my face, or you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then in Exodus 34, 5 to 9, that event actually happens. Okay? I gave you the context. I've read the actual story. Let's jump into it now. It all sounds pretty good in the first few verses of Exodus 34. Remember, they've gotten a plague because of their golden calf situation, and it seems like God is kind of over his anger. And he gives them some instructions, and then he tells them what his activities will be. See his instructions, verse 1, depart, okay? It's time for you to go. And he also says, where they are going? Go to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God starts, the plague seems to be over. God says, it's time to go and I'm going to fulfill my promise. I promised to give that land to your fathers, and now I'm going to do it. And the way I'm going to do it, the activities I'm going to do, verse number two, I'm going to send an angel, and I'm going to drive out all those people, all those Ittites. They're all gone. The angel is going to come and take those people out. I will do the work of preparing the land for you, and the people must be going, all right, we're ready to go. God punished us for the plague, or for the golden calf, and we're going to move on and then God drops the bomb on them. What is the bomb that he drops on them? I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you. See it? Look at verse 30, or chapter 33. Uh, I gave you the instructions. Verse 1, depart. Verse 2, I will send. Verse 3, go up. And then it says, but I will not go up among you. He's speaking, of course, to us in human terms as we know that God is omnipresent, but what he is saying is the favor of my presence is going to be taken away from you. Why? Why? It's a question we'll answer in a minute. Verse 4 is one of the most, it's a fascinating verse, isn't it? God says, I will not go with you. When they heard this disastrous word. What a great term. They heard this disastrous word. Truly, it is a disastrous word. It's the actual word for evil in the Hebrew. This is an evil word. It's used in several places. In fact, in Genesis 2 and 3, it is used of the whole of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's used in the Bible of a circumstance that is a very grave situation. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 19, it's used when... Uh, Moses comes back and says, hey, God says, let my people go. They say, hey, we're not letting them go. And besides that, they now got to make bricks and gather their own straw and the quota will not be diminished. And the people say, this is an evil thing. This is a troublesome thing. Same word. It's also used in Numbers chapter 20, verse 5, when the people are brought out into the wilderness and they're complaining against Moses and said, why did you bring us to this evil place? It's used of something that is of poor quality or ugly. In Genesis chapter 41, when Pharaoh has his dreams about the, the seven calves of famine, remember that dream where seven cows are withered and gaunt and seven come and eat them? Remember that dream? That the, the cows are described by this word, evil. It's a disastrous, harmful, unwholesome, disagreeable, poor, ugly, grave term. What we're saying here is the absence of the favorable presence of God in their life is a disagreeable, ugly, harmful circumstance. It is poor. It is grave. And apparently, this is what's astonishing the absence of God's presence wasn't going to hinder the work. You follow what I'm saying? Go to the land. The angel will drive out the people. You will inherit the land of milk and honey, but you will not have my presence. That kind of got me. Okay, you're going to get the land. You're going to get the blessing. The people are going to be gone. We're going to take care of all that, but I will not go. They were going to take the land, drive out the nations, but the presence of God would not be going with them. It seems to indicate that that things can be achieved even without the presence of God. Two quick applications before we move on. First of all, it is God's presence that actually conquers evil. Think of Psalm 23, verse 4. I will fear no what? Same word. Same word for disastrous here. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are, say it, with me. It is His presence that makes us be able to face the trouble, and evil. But what about when His presence is gone? His presence being gone actually is evil. That's that's good. That's good. When God is present with us, any, think of those words I gave you, troublesome, grave, disagreeable, unwholesome, harmful, poor, or ugly situation in our lives can be faced because He's with us. But when He takes His presence away from us, that is the nature of evil itself. The troublesome, harmful situation. Look at the, the switches that have been made here. Look at verse 1. I, I hope you notice this. We, we read it so quickly, maybe it was difficult to notice. But, but look at... There, it's amazing what the smallest of words indicate. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt. What's the small word that changed? You and what? The people. What did Moses say to Pharaoh over and over again? Let the people go? He said, let my people go. Look at the switch. See it? Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And then God finally says, you take the people. His presence being removed. You take the people. I'm done with them. You can go up and take the land and have the blessings. And then look at the other phrase that's changed. Verse 2. Again, the smallest of words. I will send un, an, I will send an angel. Look back up to chapter 32, just a few verses before, verse uh, 34. But now go and lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, What's the word there? It's not A N, it's what? My angel. It goes from the people, from my people to the people. It goes from my angel to unangel. God is removing his very presence from the people as punishment for their sin, even though he's still allowing them to have the blessings. It's all happening on the heels of their idolatry. They are worshiping gods that they can see and touch. But worshiping gods that they can see and touch is removing the very presence of the true God from their midst. On the mountain, Moses is receiving the first commandment. Thou shalt have what? No other gods before me. Martin Luther said that whatever a man loves, that is his God. Whatever a man loves, That is his God. How do we discern that? Ask yourself these four questions. What takes up my time? What do I spend my treasure on? What monopolizes my thinking? What am I always talking about? I try to give four T things there. What takes up my time? What do I spend my treasure on? What monopolizes my thinking? What am I always talking about? You look at your time, your treasures, your thinking, and your talking, and there's your God. What do you love? Is there something that you run to instead of into the Lord? I think about all the people that could be gathered with us today but are spending their time, their thinking, their talking and their treasures on something else. The people who give so much effort and energy to other things, they may not create a golden idol that they bow and worship to, but they spend little to no time with God and His Word or with God's people, certainly not serving Him. And God desires to give us and to fill us with His presence Again, the special favor of His presence. But when we carry other things, pursuing them during the day and pondering them at night, there is not room for Him. No divine presence for the people meant that the tabernacle would not be a part of their existence. There would be no altar for sacrifice, no laver for cleansing, no lampstand for light, no table for food, no incense for prayer, no ark for the atonement. This truly is, verse 4, a disastrous word. Now let's ask ourselves this question. I made some quick applications there, and I, I hope the Holy Spirit convicts each one of us. I could stay further on that and ask us, what is our God, but let's move on. God says you're going to get all that I've promised But I'm not going with you. Now, let's ask ourselves this question What what would we expect the people's response to be when they heard this? This is a people that have grumbled and complained since day one coming out of the nation of Egypt. They've seen the miraculous working of God over and over again, yet they're still grumbling and complaining. Because God says, I'm not going to take away the blessing. You still can have the land. You can still have the milk and honey. I'm going to drive out those nations. It's just that you won't have me. We kind of expect them to say, oh, it's okay. Because most people want the blessings of God without the burden of His presence. Like they want all the gifts that God wants to give and will give, but they don't want Him Himself. But even the sinful Israelites knew better than this. Look at their response in verse 4. They mourned. This is not what we want. We want the presence of God. And they took off all their ornaments. What this means is their jewelry and their finery. This was a sign of repentance. They knew that outward decorations, whether it be clothing or jewels, rings, did not mesh with being humble before God. And if you look at the word that describes how they did it, it says they stripped them off. It's almost like they took them and threw them away. Like if I were to grab this and just throw it off my watch. Get rid of this stuff. It it indicates their eagerness. What verse is stripped? Uh, Verse 8. Oh, excuse me, verse 6. looks like an 8. The people of Israel stripped themselves, got rid of them eagerly. And it says they did it from Mount Horeb onward. We know they're going to continue to sin, but they're demonstrating a change. So let's go back and answer the question then. Why did God say he wouldn't go? That's important to us. What is it that threatens the favorable presence of God in their life? And I think that we can also say, what is it that threatens the favorable presence of God in our lives, in the life of our church? Why did he say he wouldn't go? What is the threat? Is he just mad? Is he just ticked off? Well, kind of. Look at the verse. It's verse number three when he announces that he's not going to go. He says, go up to the land, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are, here it is, a stiff-necked people. That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes here. The threat to the presence of God is the stiff necks of the people. Now, it doesn't mean, oh. Oh. I've been looking up for a long time. I got a sore, I got a crick in my neck. It's a term that means hard or cruel. It actually came to mean obstinate, stubborn or rebellious. It's used in the word stiff-necked in the English is used in one place in the New Testament. Dave read it for us this morning, Acts 7. Stephen reads or Stephen gives that whole speech about the history of the nation of Israel. He takes a long time on Moses and the Exodus. And he talks about Joseph, and he talks about all the prophets that were rejected. And he says, I think it's verse 57, that may be not the right number, but he says, you have always been a stiff-necked people. I would say, and I'm going to summarize this again at the end, that it's not the saving favor. Again, we're not talking about that. The saving favor of God comes without works. But the special favor of God, specifically the special favor of His presence, is given to the righteous and removed from the rebellious. It's given to the obedient, but it's removed from the obstinate. Let me say it again. It's given to the righteous and removed from the rebellious. It's given to the obedient and removed from the obstinate. That's the the division. We talked about it last Sunday as well. Scripture teaches that. Again, it doesn't mean the absence of difficulty. It doesn't mean our pockets will be full of money no health issues, it just means the special favor of his presence will be with us. Now, what does stiff neck, what does it mean to be stiff necked? Well, let's let the Bible tell us, okay? Let's let the Bible tell us. There's four passages I want us to turn to. And I want us to flip to these or scan through them on your phone and look at them together with me. Because one great pastor said, you should always illustrate scripture with scripture, so let's look at the scripture and find out how it's used in other places because whatever it is, we want to do what with it? We want to avoid it. We want to know what it is and we want to avoid it because if we don't avoid it and we're stiff-necked, then there is a threat to God's favor on us. Let's start with Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's start with Nehemiah. We're going to, we don't usually do stuff like this. Uh, we usually stay in one passage, but in this case... I want us to look at it, Nehemiah chapter 9. It's actually the whole chapter, we've we've read a lot, so I'm just going to highlight a few verses. Nehemiah actually gives the history of what we're talking about back in Exodus chapter 33. Again, we'll skip through, I'll call out some numbers so you can follow along, there'll be a few phrases we definitely want to grab. Verse 7 of chapter 9, you are the Lord who chose Abram. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Very similar to Stephen's speech, a review of the history. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. Verse 11, you divided the sea. Verse 12, a pillar of cloud led them. Verse 13, you came at Mount Sinai and gave them rules. There's our word. Right, Tony? Gave them rules <laughs> and laws. You made them known. You, verse uh, 15, you gave them bread, etc., etc. We're just kind of highlighting it. Verse 16, but, it's a bad switch. God, you did all this, right? Got all that? You led them, delivered them, uh, fed them, parted the Red Sea. But, talking about those same people in Exodus 33, they acted presumptuously, means proudly. And look what the phrase is. They did what? Say it. Everybody say it. Stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commands. They refused to obey. And were not mindful of the wonders that you performed. But they, say it again, stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to, the, to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God who is gracious and merciful, ready to forgive, etc., etc. Let's make a little list. If you're taking notes, make a little list to the side. Here's what this passage tells us about people who have a stiff neck they act proudly. That was the first thing. They act proudly. See, the Bible's explaining it to us. They act proudly. They did not obey, they refused to obey. They forgot the wonders that God did, they rebelled. Verse 29, if we were to look all the way down there again, says they refused to obey. They did evil. So, so far here we have a little list of acting proudly, not obeying, being forgetful of God's goodness, and rebelling. Okay? We're getting an idea of what being a stiff-necked person means. Let's look at one more. Uh, we'll skip, we'll, I'll, I'll give you a verse. We won't look at it. It's Jeremiah 7:21 to 26 and in that passage, to add to the list, just for time's sake, it also says they would not obey or they would not listen or they would not incline their ear to the teaching. Okay? A third passage. We'll look to this one. 2 Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36. Hang with, please. I know this is somewhat tedious, but it really is helpful. Because this is a huge threat. God is abandoning these people because they are stiff necked. We've got to know what that means. So far, we're getting a little bit of a clue. Here we are in 2 Chronicles 36. There are some statements made about King Zedekiah. We haven't talked about him very often. Verse number 11 tells us he was 21 years old when he became king. And there's not a good uh, summary about his life. Verse 12. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 13, he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who made him swear by God. Now here's our term. He stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. Okay, so so far to add to the list, we have very similar things that we've already heard about. He didn't, did what was evil and did not humble himself. Same kind of things. Was, was proud and, and acted disobediently. But there's going to be more. Look at verse 14. The word likewise is in verse 14. So since the priests and people likewise, that means we can say this about Zedekiah who had a stiff neck. Here's some more to add to our list. We're unfaithful, followed the abominations of the nations, polluted the house of the Lord, but it gets worse. Look at verse 15. The Lord lovingly and graciously persistently sent messengers to the people, pleading with them, But, verse 16, they kept... Let's add to the list. They mocked the messengers of God. They despised His words. They scoffed at His prophets. Pretty long list here of what it means to be stiff-necked. Let's review it. Acting proudly, not obeying, being forgetful of God's wonders, rebelling, would not obey, would not listen, would not incline, did what was evil, did not humble himself, hardened his heart, became unfaithful, followed abominations, and then mocked and despised and scoffed the Word of God. Look at one more. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. I take you here as our last one because it kind of gives the solution. It kind of gives the solution. Verse 8 of 2 Chronicles 30. Do not now be stiff-necked. So don't be that whole list. Don't be proud. Don't be disobedient. Don't be unwilling to listen. Above all, don't scoff and mock the Word of God. But, gives us a solution. Gives us a three-step solution. But yield yourselves to the Lord. What He says we will do. Come to His sanctuary. Be a part of worship and fellowship. And thirdly, serve the Lord. To be stiff-necked means to be arrogant, proud, lack humility, have a hard heart which refuses to hear the Word of God. And you can turn back to Exodus 33. To be disobedient, to be rebellious, to be forgetful of God's marvelous deeds of deliverance. It is the stiff-necked person who forgets all that God has done through Jesus Christ to save you and I. And is forgetful of that and wants to live our own lives because we're proud and arrogant. And when the Scripture says, or a pastor or a teacher tells us something from God's Word that we need to get right, we become hard-hearted to that, and we stiffen our necks. And when we do that, God says, all right, the favor of my presence is gone. So he says to the people in Exodus 33. You can still have the land. You can still have the blessings. I'll still drive out the people. You can still do church. You can still talk to people about but my presence is gone. The warning from Scripture in Proverbs 29.1 and Proverbs 28.14 says, He that is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. There seems to be a point where the person who continually hardens his heart and is proud and will not listen is, is finally going to be cut off. Proverbs 28.14 says the same thing. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever his heart, hardens his heart will fall into calamity. This is, this is the warning. This is the threat. This is the danger. This is what to avoid. That big list of what it means to be hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And Moses, at this point, he is God's appointed deliverer. The one who's been charged with this task. He goes outside the camp and pitches a tent. This is not the tabernacle. This is just a tent where Moses is going to meet with God. You know, the people hear this word and they mourn and they strip off their ornaments and they show repentance. And Moses says, Moses hears this disastrous word. His thing is, i got to talk to the Lord about this right now. He goes out and pitches a tent and he speaks to God as a man does face to face as a friend. This is astonishing. And the Lord and Moses will speak. And if you're Moses, what is it that you request of God at this moment? Moses is going to openly and boldly ask God for three things. Okay, This is where we're going to end it. He's going to ask God for three things. And we're going to make application at the end. But he goes to God in verse 12. Well, let me give you the three things he says, then we'll talk about them. Verse 12, he says, God, show me your ways. Verse 15, he says, God, give me your presence. And number three in verse 18, he says, God, show me your glory. Okay? Show me your ways, verse 12. Give me your presence, verse 15. Show me your glory. Now in verse 12, this first one, show me your ways, it really is a fascinating thing to look at when Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. Someone who knows Hebrew a lot better than I in one of the books I read this week, it's like saying this. It's like Moses went to God and said, now see here, God. That's, how, that's what like, the term is. Now, I don't think in a disrespectful or arrogant way, but he's like, like a friend talks to a friend. It's what Scripture says. Now see here, God. You told me to do this task. And now you're saying... You're not going to come along? In other words, you're giving me a job to do. Please don't leave me without the means to fulfill it. Show me your ways. He asks that in verse number 13. He says, you have not let me know whom you will send. You said an angel is going to come. That's not good enough for me. I want your angel, who is a... uh, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, in my opinion. I don't want just some other angel. I want your angel. You said I found favor, then show me your ways. Give me some direction. Make me understand what you want. And he also is implying that when you make me know your ways, this is verse 13, I will seek to obey them because I will find favor in your sight. And then he says, remember God, end of verse 13, this nation is your people. Now think of that. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And then he says, you take the people. And Moses goes, builds a tent and says, God, stop saying the people. These are your people. Moses is being really, really bold, isn't he? Because he's desperate. He says, you give me this job to lead all these people. You cannot leave me without the way to fulfill it. If you leave me, I can't do it. So show me your ways. And the Lord, the Lord reverses his decision. Look at it. End of verse 13. God, consider too that this nation is your people. And he, that is the Lord, he said, my presence will go with you. Whew. Compare that to verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you. Uh, God, uh, you give me the job. Show me your ways. These people are your people. Okay, I'll go with you. Moses boldly, openly asks, and he receives God's blessing. But he's not done. Second thing, and this is, this is odd. Verse 15, he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, wait a minute. God just said, My presence will go up with you. Let, let's try to look at it this way. I mean, it's hard to just read all the words and the he's and the they's. And the, so here's what's happening. He, he goes out, makes this tent, and he says, uh, God, Uh, I don't know if I heard you right, you saying you're not going to go with us, but you gave me a job and I need you, show me your ways. And God says, my presence will go with you. And then Moses right away says, well, if your presence doesn't, don't even bother. Well, God must be thinking, I just said I'm going. Why are you asking again? You know what Moses is doing? Moses is making sure. Moses got OCD right here. You ever go back to your door and lock it again? You go inside the house, huh, did I lock that? I better go back out and check. God says, My presence will go with you. And Moses is so desiring of the presence of God, he says, If you don't come, this is all over right now. We may not even, we might as well not even bother. Don't even bring us up from here. Because how will it be known that I have found favor in your sight if you don't go with me? Moses is saying, that The very definition of favor with God is his presence with his people. Let's not even bother. It is your presence that proves favor. Your very reputation is at stake. There's no point in traveling without your presence. Even though God said, you will drive out the nations, we don't care. We don't want your blessings without you, Moses says. It's not worth it. You can have all the blessings that God wants to give, but without God, it's worthless. And last, third, verse 18, he asks one more thing. He says, show me your ways, Give me your presence. God's like, yeah, I'm going. Well, if you don't go, we better not go. And God says, yeah, I'm going. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do. That is going with you. I will do it. For you found favor in my sight. And Moses says, that still isn't enough. He says, that still isn't enough. And he asks him to show him your glory. Think about this. You're in the tent. You're meeting with God like a man speaks to his friend and Moses says, I'm not satisfied with that experience. i got to have more. i got to know you more. i got to see you more. Show me your glory. It's interesting. I think the Bible teaches this, that at moments of crisis in the Bible, we need and desire and want a deeper vision and an understanding of the presence of God. Think about this. In John chapter 14, when Jesus announces that he's leaving, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in me, believe in God, believe in me. I'm going away, but I will come again and receive you to myself. And Philip says, "For first of all, Thomas says, we don't know the way. Show us the way. And then Philip says, show us the Father. It's a moment of crisis. Show us the Father. It sounds a lot like show me your glory. At moments of crisis or trouble, the thing that we should desire is, an, is, a, is a certainty and an understanding and an experience of the very presence of God. In John 20, Thomas says, I will not believe until I touch and see the fingers. I I need a better understanding than just you telling me. And that's what Moses is saying here. I want and I need a greater sense of your presence. Now before, I'm going to jump to application later, but, but let's do it right now too. That must be our desire, our desire as a church. A greater experience of the glory and presence of God. Now, do you want that? Because if you don't, I should be like Moses and say, if we don't want that, there's no point in doing all this. We could have all the blessings. We could have the land of milk and honey. We could have all this beautiful building and all kinds of things, but without the presence of God, it's not enough. And Moses is saying, I want more. We can't even begin to describe what Moses saw. Human language fails. In Exodus 34, verse 5, God grants him this experience. We didn't read that yet. But the Lord puts him in the cleft in that rock like he announced that he would. And in verse 5, it says he passed by him and proclaimed who he was, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving, etc., etc. And remember, he sees kind of sees God's back. God doesn't have a back. God doesn't have a face. Human language is failing here in expressing what God shows to Moses, but he does see and experience a greater presence of God. What a study. Here's what Moses basically asks for. He says, God, please go with us. He says, God, Please pardon us. And he says, God, please own us. Look at verse 9. This is where I'm getting this. After he has this experience, verse 8, he quickly, (laughs) quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, here's his prayer, If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go up in the midst of us. He asked for his presence again. See that? Even though he's already been promised it. Please go with us. That's his first request. For it is a stiff-necked people. And second request, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Four applications and we'll be done. What does this mean for us? We want to be part of God's special plan and see Him do great work. And I do. And I believe you do. I'm just trying to preach messages that will revitalize us and remind us of this. God, make your face shine upon us and now God, show us your glory. Here's what must be done. Number one. They're kind of long, so you summarize them however you want. You you must realize that being stiff-necked is a dangerous threat to the favor of God. You've got to realize that being stiff-necked is a dangerous threat to the favor of God. And so we must seek to obey Him, seek to listen and follow His commands and to seek God above His blessings. There is the promise of seeking Him and finding Him and finding His favor. Second application. We must abandon all other gods that threaten what God wants to give us. We must abandon all other gods that threaten what God wants to give us. We cannot be so full of everything else that there is no room for God. I was looking on Twitter uh, last night and saw a tweet It convicted me. It's something like, and it was by Kevin DeYoung, and I don't know exactly what it said, but it's something like, if man does not seek God in the morning, he will not find him the rest of the day. It's like, where is the priority for us? What is the first thing we think of? What is, what is that we talk about? What do we spend our time on? Abandon those other things so God can give us the manifestation of His favor and presence. Third, as a church, let us boldly beg God for what Moses did. And there's going to be A, B, and C under this. Let us boldly beg God for what Moses did. Hebrews 4.16, let us boldly come into the throne of grace and ask God. And I just showed you at the end of 34 verse 9 what Moses asked for. We ask for God's, they all start with P. So let's ask, boldly ask for God's presence. We say, well, God's with us. We know that. Let's ask for a special experience of his favor. As a church, let's beg him for it. God, please go with us. Let us not run this Bible school without the presence of God. You know we could do that? It's all planned. It's all arranged. Everything's built. Got Everything ready? Prizes bought? We could do it all without the presence of God. Let us beg Him for His presence and His favor. Let us beg Him for His second pardon. That's what Moses says. Please pardon us. We know we're stiff-necked. We know we're stubborn and obstinate and rebellious. God, forgive us of that. And let us beg Him that we would be His possession. Let Him, let him own us. So let us beg Him for His presence, His pardon, and His possession. God, own us. We are Yours. Do with us what You will. Possess this church for your glory. Acts 20 says, You bought it with your own blood. Let us serve you as your your slaves. Fourth and last. So realize stiff-necked, being stiff-necked is a threat. Abandon all our gods. Boldly beg God, as Moses did, for the presence, pardon, and possession of God. And fourth, let us remind God of his promises. That's what Moses did. He reminded God: these are your people. You made a promise. Let's remind him of his promise to build his church. Matthew 16. God has promised to do it. Let's remind him to fulfill his word as we pray and ask him. Now may God bestow his presence and power in our midst as we seek him first and his righteousness. And everything else will be added unto you. Shine your face on us, God, and show us your glory. It's just a start. We have more lessons to come And I pray it will revitalize us as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness in leading us through this study today.